Yes, it will be a familiar passage to some of you today. But as um, C.S. Lewis once said, beware of the horror of the same old thing. You know, the devil loves to make you think, oh, I've heard this before. Well, go and have a nap. Because I'm hoping something will... What I'm sharing with you, I've gained through my own study and through listening to others, but the things I'm sharing are things that have impacted me. So I trust they will impact you. Just before we start on the Philippians uh, talk, I want to just quickly say, in the prayer meeting, before the meeting, Terry prayed about God being like a potter and us being like the clay. I just want to say this. Some people think the clay has no choice in how it turns out. You know, God's made Tim a pastor, God's made so-and-so a coffee drink, you know, coffee server. It's not the case, though. The case is this, that if we respond and say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, if we respond to the potter, he will turn us into something beautiful. It's only those who resist God that he has to make into a basic old pot, because they wouldn't let him do it. So I'll leave that with you. It's not fatalism. We have a God who is responsive. And I hope you won't resist him this morning in what he has to say. We're looking at the sixth session in Philippians, and I've entitled it Running Towards the Goal. And essentially, before we read the passage, it is essentially a contrast. It's contrasting the way Paul the Apostle lived and the way self-centered people live. So you're going to get a choice this morning. You can either be like Paul the Apostle, someone who pursues Christ, someone who forgets about the past and looks forward, someone who lives out and out, flat out for the finish for God, or you can be person B, which is someone who panders to self. That's it, basically, in a nutshell this morning. You've got a choice before you. Do you want to be A, someone who's out and out for the Lord Jesus, or do you want to be a self-indulgent panderer to self, basically? Let's go to the passage, um, if it works. <clears throat> oh, Lord. We'll just get the technology going. Can we get this to work? Otherwise, I'll just click my fingers. Don't you love technology? Praise the Lord. Anyway. Now, I don't know if you can read that. I'm going to read it out to you. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Yeah. And I've gone back a little bit to verse 9 so that it makes sense. And we're going to read all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. I've used the New Living Translation with a couple of paraphrases inserted, not because I wanted to twist the Bible, but because I believe it brings out the meaning better. Because there is no one version of the Bible which is really, really, really good. They all have good strength, so I've kind of mixed them a little, but I trust you won't burn me at the stake thinking I've twisted the Bible. <clears throat> Verse 9, Paul says, I no longer count on my own good deeds to get me right with God through obeying God's law. Rather, I only become right with God through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. 
I want to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I also want to suffer with him and become like him in his death. So in one way or another, I will experience being resurrected out from among those who are spiritually dead and be raised up and enabled to live a new, higher life. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved all there is or that I have already reached perfection, but I do press on to take hold of that for which Christ caught and grabbed hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I have not yet achieved all of Christ's perfect maturity. However, there is one thing that I do. I forget the past and concentrate on that which lies ahead. I press on to finish the race, running straight for the finishing line, in order to win the prize, which is God's calling upwards to live a higher kind of life in Christ. Let all those who are spiritually fit, that means those in training and ready for contest, agree on these things. If some of you have a different attitude, God will make things plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress that we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For, and here's the contrast, for I have told you often before and say again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their bodily desires. They are proud of what they should be ashamed of and their minds are locked onto earthly things. They are thinking only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven and we eagerly wait for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. When he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious resurrection body. He will do this through that power by which he is able to bring all things under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. Okay. Now, I don't know if you can see that next picture. That is a picture of a tree with an axe going through it. Um, my brother has a chainsaw. He very, he's very good with it, but with an axe, it's a lot harder. But the point of that picture, you might wonder why I put it there, is it's a reflection of verse 9, because what I'm going to do today, by the way, I'm going to use pictures more than text. You're going to get a whole load of pictures. It's going to be a bit of a picture show. But you see, that tree trunk, to me, represents the pride of man Proud man. Now, the gospel of Jesus cuts in right across the pride of man. And I'll tell you why. Because in verse 9, Paul says he doesn't rely on his own good deeds anymore. And proud man says, if I am good enough, if I, um, my good deeds will get me into heaven. There are people who believe, if, if you know, I'm good enough, we meet them on healing on the streets. They say, well, I've led a good life. 
And proud man says, my good deeds will get me into heaven. But the gospel chops that one down. Equally, some people say, well, Adolf Hitler, and I'm not saying he is in heaven, but Adolf Hitler could never, never get to heaven. He's too evil and wicked. But let me tell you the truth. If Adolf Hitler had repented and really said sorry to God, he could have been forgiven. And that offends proud man. Because proud man says, good deeds can get me into heaven, bad deeds will keep me out. Well, the truth of the gospel is this. Your good deeds will not get you into heaven, and your bad deeds need not keep you out. It is only those who cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, they will be saved. And why I'm reading this is because earlier in the passage, what's happened there? Um, never mind. It did, it did say in verse 9 <laughs> that I don't, uh, it's not through my own good deeds that I can be saved. Now here's a question for you on verse 9. Some people re don't realise they have to repent of their good deeds. Not just their bad ones. They've got to repent of their good ones. Like, I'm good enough for heaven. No, no, repent of that. You've got to trust in Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 9. And this, to me, is not just good news. It's great news. Because gr the great news is you don't have to achieve it yourself. You have to just believe. And it's great news that you don't have to do it. Now, there is a problem with this teaching, and the problem is this. If, when people listen to this teaching and it says, all I've got to do is believe, they can start to think it doesn't matter what I'm like then. They can start to believe that it doesn't matter uh, what I'm like. And I'll show you a picture now. That is a man asleep in a lift. Looks a bit like Tarno, but, but it's not. <laughs> There's a man asleep in the lift, and I call this the lift to heaven. And we've all suffered from this at times in our Christian life. This mentality says, well, if Jesus did it all on the cross for me, then I just need to get in the lift, press the top floor heaven, sit back, and chill out. Because there's no point in me doing anything, because Jesus did it all for me. Yeah? It's called the lift of lethargy. Or lethargy in the lift. And I've got a picture of Sherlock Holmes there. He's made a dangerous deduction. You see, some people think, look, if you're saying it's all by believing in what Jesus did, then I can just chill. But that is not the way Paul lived. Yes, it is based on what God did. But Paul, if you read it, he pursued God. He ran the race. He didn't go, ah, I'm going to sit back and float off to heaven. Paul was a go-getter of the first order. He did not settle down by a cottage by the seashore of Turkey and say, I'll just wait for heaven. And evidently, some people in the church in Philippi probably thought, we've arrived. And the root error of this is that people say, my condition doesn't matter to God. Now, this is the truth. Yes, you only get to heaven through Jesus, but he expects a response. Not to get you into heaven, but if he sees no response, he just sees you lounging about in the lift, waiting to get to heaven, 
then he's going to question, well, have you really responded? It's not to earn anything, it's to almost prove that it's real. Paul did not doss about. That's one error that can fall from that verse. Now, the next error is this one. A further deduction that Sherlock makes is that if you think, well, it's all based on Jesus and the cross, then you can think to yourself, well, then it doesn't matter if I sin a lot. I've got a license to sin. There are people, they, they call them, sorry to be a bit long-winded, but they call them antinomian, antinomianisms, antinomianists. What they do is they believe there's no, it doesn't matter how you live, your state doesn't matter before God. Because Jesus did it all for me. And there were people in the church in Philippi who were living like this. They believed in Jesus, but then they were just saying, well, he died on the cross, I can go and sin, I can go and get drunk, I can go and sleep around, I can do this, I can do that. Because it's all dependent on him. Very clever argument that devil thought up, isn't it? Devil's teaching that one. Doesn't matter what you do with your body, of course it does. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? And there's another verse that says, God is not mocked. If you think, oh, I'm a Christian, I can go and do what I like. God will forgive me at the end of the day. If you believe you've got a blank check, that's a blank check there. It's nice to get one of those, isn't it? <laughs> a blank check saying you can sin as much as you like. That You're mistaken, because God is not mocked. God's not a fool. But the good news is that... God does forgive, absolutely, but he expects us to live like Paul did, which is different to that. So we don't have a license to sin. You know James Bond had a license to kill? Would you like one of those? 007, license to kill. Well, some Christians think they've got a license to sin. They haven't. It's not true. Right, let's move on. Now, verse 10 if you don't remember what verse 10 said, I'll just read to you quickly. Verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Now, he's not talking about one day at the end of final judgment only. He's talking about, I want to experience the power of a new higher life now on this earth. And... This is the truth. God bless you, Simeon. <laughs> this is the truth. God has credited to us in heaven's bank account all his righteousness. In other words, you are not a pauper. You've got a very rich bank account in heaven that Christ has deposited a very large sum of resources. All right? He has. Now, you didn't earn it. When he died on the cross, he put, imagine Tim's got a heavenly bank account. I know it's a bit silly, but just listen, hear me out. In Tim's heavenly bank account is all the righteousness of Christ has been deposited. All the resources and graces and blessings of Christ have been deposited in his bank account. Now, what does God expect then? He expects you to use some of it. Imagine this, look, there's a picture here of a, a man, a very wealthy man, meeting a tramp, sitting by in a subway, now imagine this man meets the tramp and says to him, look mate, I feel sorry for you, I'm going to go and put a lot of money into your bank. And I'll come back and see you next week. Or I'll find you. 
And he goes and deposits a million pounds in the tramp's bank, right? Then he comes back the next day and he finds him still sat there like that. And he says to him, why are you still living like this? Why haven't you, you, have you paid your debts off? No. Why are you still not wearing any shoes? I've given you all this stuff. Why are you not using it? And that's how God views the Christians. I'm not talking prosperity gospel. What I'm talking about is God expects us to live a higher life than we used to live. Because he's given us resources. He's given you the ability to say no to sin, to put away bad habits. He's given you the ability, I know it's hard, but he's given you the ability to forget the past and to look on. He's given you the ability to forgive that person who really, really hurt you. Um, He's given you the power to live a higher life. And when he comes along, he doesn't expect to see you still living like the old sinner, a tramp. I'm not saying you can't sin. God knows that. But what I'm saying is, are we using it? Because if you're not, you know, in God, there's so much righteousness, so much resources. It says in 1 Peter somewhere, he's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. And we can get so lazy and think, oh, I'm a Christian, just roll up at church, have my dinner, go home. You know, whereas God's saying, I've got so much in your heavenly bank account, will you please start using it? Forgive that person. You, I can I'll use my resources to forgive that person. So no excuses, please. <laughs> now, um, Paul was like this. Paul, you see, he did not slacken off. When Paul got saved, he did not believe he didn't have anything and he didn't just chill out. He used what God had gift, gifted to him. Now, next slide. Oh, dear, I keep going wrong today. Right. Now, this might confuse you. I've told you there's lots of pictures. The top picture is a picture of a bar fire. Do you remember those old radiator bar fires? My mum used to have one in our house before we had proper heating. And the bar fire, their class is quite dangerous these days. But in order to get warm, you've got to sit near it. It's no good you going off into the bathroom because you'll freeze. But if you go into the lounge, you've got a bath fire, you'll sit there. My mum used to sit in front of it and hog it. My dad, who's skinny, would like get all cold and she'd be like, it's mine. But the point I'm making is, in order to get warm, you've got to be near the bath fire. And here's the truth. In order to receive the riches of Christ, you've got to be near him. Because it's all in him. It's not actually in you. You can't download it all and walk around. Tim can't you know, as the leader here, he can't download all of God's blessings and go, right, don't need God anymore. I can wander around on my own. I am Mr. Righteous. What Tim has to do, as all of us, has to, he has to come before the Lord regularly and get warmed up. <laughs> and that sounds a strange example, but all the righteousness stays in him. It's his. It's not ours to just download and wander off. It's a bit like one of... Um, I've got a mobile phone. You know the mobile phones? These mobile phones are great, aren't they? Well, sometimes. But the thing about a mobile phone is you have to keep charging it up. Mine runs out really quick. It runs down really fast. And we have to, like in that picture, we have to keep coming to God because that's where the righteousness is. It's not our own. He, well, it can, we, we can be in him in Christ, in the Spirit, and then these things 
become real and we experience the mighty power of his resurrection, which is what Paul's talking about. We experience it because it's, we're actually plugging into the Lord. So I challenge you, if you just think you just can go and tick along on yourself, by yourself, then you won't really be living that life. You'll soon fade. It's like a flower. You cut a flower off from its roots. It looks nice for a while, but then it fades and goes all brown. Uh, I don't give flowers often enough to my wife, but I shall now have to do it. <clears throat> right. <laughs> now, the next little thing about... That was from verses 10 and 11, by the way. He wants to experience this power. Well, how? By getting Christ into Christ. And then it talks about sharing in his sufferings. The next picture, verses 10 and 11, talks about the sufferings. Now, this is a... I'm afraid it is the case that in order to get nearer to Jesus, there is often suffering. It's not all a bed of roses. And that picture there is of a crucible melting the metal. But the truth of verse 11 is this. It says in the NIV, the fellowship of his suffering. What does that mean? I think what it means is that when you suffer, God is really with you. He fellowships with you in it. And you can find risen power from the risen Christ and strength when you're going through suffering, if you're open to him. That's what it means, the fellowship of his suffering. People who bear the cross are not left alone to just handle it by themselves. God draws near. Um, so I want to encourage you, yeah, it says there, cross-bearers are not left alone. So when you go through suffering, rather than just reacting against it, why don't you say, well, maybe God is trying to draw near in this. Let me find him in the fellowship of the suffering. Okay. Um, let's go on to the next one. Verse 12. Why did Christ catch hold of you? Now in verse 12, Paul says this. At the end of verse 12, he says, I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus grabbed hold of me, or possessed me. Verse 12, I want to ask you a question. Why did Jesus get hold of you? Why did he grab hold of you? Is it to give you a ticket to heaven? Partly. <laughs> but the real reason Jesus got hold of you, I think there are three reasons why Jesus got hold of us. One is he's got something for you to do on this earth. He's got something for you to do on this earth. That's why he's got hold of you. That's why you've been rugby tackled by the Lord. Did you, did you get rugby tackled by the Lord? I did. I was, doing, I was doing bodybuilding. I was taking steroids. I was like, going to go to America and put on a funny pair of underpants and pose on the beach. I mean, how ridiculous. My parents nearly lost all their hair. Then Jesus came along and rugby tackled me at university. I heard the gospel and the Lord just went, boom, a bit like the linebacker evangelist. You know? <laughs> boom, I'm going to take you down, baby. <clears throat> but the Lord got hold of me and my whole plans were scuppered. Well, what, here's the question. Why did God get hold of you? I believe one reason is he's got something for you to do. Don't despise that. Otherwise, you'd be dead and in heaven already. He's got a job for you on the earth. The second reason I believe he got hold of you is so that you will become satisfied and desirous of Christ. 
but he will be your God, not all this other rubbish. Everything else is rubbish compared to Jesus. We said it last week. Everything else is rubbish compared to owning and knowing and loving Jesus and desiring Jesus and growing into Jesus' likeness. Third reason, I just said it, is to become like him. He wants you to become like Jesus. He wants you to grow into his likeness. This happened to the Apostle Paul, you know. He was going along the road to Damascus and God rugby tackled him. Caught him, basically had a revelation. God came into his life and he grabbed hold of Paul. And Paul's life was turned upside down because he had a purpose for his life. And he, he has a purpose for your life too. What I love about the Apostle Paul is that he was doing that to Christians. He was chasing Christians. He was rugby tackling Christians. He was grabbing them. He was persecuting them, chasing them, catching them, putting them in prison. He was going for the Christians and then God got hold of him. And now, what does he do, Paul? Does he sit in the lift and go, oh, it's all fine, I'm saved now, hallelujah. Does he sit and sing saying, oh, I've got lots of money in my heavenly bank account, hallelujah, but I don't have to do anything. No, what Paul does, he then starts to chase after Christ and pursue Christ and grab Christ and rugby tackle Christ. That's the kind of, if you can get the picture, first he was running around grabbing the Christians, arresting them. When he got saved, he didn't just settle back and go on holiday. He started, right, now I'm going to grab Christ, run after Christ. I'm going to put him inside me. I'm not going to just float around on a ticket to heaven. He really went for Christ. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power that's in him. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and become like him in his death. What does that mean, become like him in his death? I think it means obey. Because Jesus obeyed till he got to the cross. Sometimes you've got to obey God and it hurts. <laughs> when it says become like him in his death, I think it means dying to the selfish part of you and just obeying God. But we all know that when we obey God, it's the best. Okay, let's move on. Go back to the first picture. This is the running, people running in the race, and they're running towards that white finishing line. And this is verses 13 to 17. And the key thing I want to say about these verses is that Paul has his eye on the prize. All right? Well, that's the white finishing line here, but, he's, but he knows there's a prize. Do you believe you have a prize awaiting you? Or do you think, oh, I've just got to get through my life, get my benefits, <laughs> have a coffee and go to sleep? There's a prize awaiting you. And Paul, what was Paul, what was grabbing Paul's attention? Because you see, a runner, when a runner runs a race, they've got to look at the finishing line. They can't be looking around. I'm going to show you something funny in a minute, hopefully. <laughs> he was looking at the prize. What is the prize? Well, I think the, it's not actually told us what the prize is. It doesn't say. He says, I press on to possess the prize. The heavenly prize. We don't know what it is, but I think it's a mixture of these things. It's the Lord himself. It's that when you die, God will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It's that when you die, you'll say, like that verse, no eye has seen what God has prepared for those who love him. It's that verse that says things like, they shall be clothed in robes of white, I don't know what the prize is, but I know God has something absolutely amazing for you. And Paul said, I'm not going to let anything take that away. 
He followed hard after the, the prize. And the verse of, the, sorry, the images of an athlete. Because when Paul was alive, there were these, Rome, uh, these Greek running races. They were called foot races. And they used to run, these Greek athletes. They used to worship the body. And often, sorry to be embarrassed, I don't recommend you do this, they were naked. They ran around naked. Don't do this. But they did it because they wanted to be light, without all burdens and weights, running for the prize. I have a friend who's now in heaven. He died. He's called Norman Mays. Some of you met him. And Norman Mays was someone who went for the prize. He went for God. Because he used to, every Saturday morning, whether he preached or whether he didn't preach, okay, he was single, didn't have kids, but <laughs> he made a point, I'm going to spend three hours with the Lord. I'm not being legalistic, but he got down. I used to come home from going out, because I wouldn't be doing that, and I'd come home and find him praying and seeking God. And I said to him, like, why are you spending all this time on your own? You know, aren't you a bit, like, you know, a bit of a monk, aren't you? And he was like, I just long for God. And he discovered things by really seeking the Lord. Here's a question. Do you, go, do you ever get down and really seek the Lord? Do I? Or do you just roll up on a Sunday? Ta-da. <laughs> God says, I wish my people would seek me. They would find so many riches in my presence. Pleasures at his right hand. Um... Go for God, is what I'm saying. Go for the prize. Now I'm going to show you something a bit funny. I hope it comes out. Now, I don't know if you can see that. That little boy in yellow, you probably can't see. That is me. <laughs> and I'm going to horrify you by telling you what year it was. It was 1975. <clears throat> Shows how old I am. 1975, that's primary school. That's uh, down in Cornwall, primary school, and we're doing a race. And there's me, I'm in second place. Look at that. Not bad. Little tucker. <laughs> but the hilarious thing is, and some of you have heard this story, is my mum was in the crowd. She was like, go on, Simon. So I was second place. I nearly overtook this guy, Simon Curtis. He was another guy in front of me. I was nearly overtook him. Then I saw my mum and I went... <laughs> and I stopped. I stopped. What a wally. I stopped in the middle and waved at her. And of course, I came last. <laughs> Why am I telling you this story? It's very possible for a Christian to get very distracted. You know when a runner runs a race, they don't go, oh look, there's the 100 meter mark. Oh look, I've just passed the 200. Oh look, there's my mum. <laughs> they go for the prize. And there are things that can distract us and slow us down. And these things are touched on in these passages. He says, forgetting the past. That's the biggest one. Looking forward. You know, the past can really affect you. Um, it could be the good things in your past, not just the bad. It could be your great achievements. I mean, Tim could say, I used to be running boys camp. Ha <laughs> ha, look at me. Uh, I did PFG. Ha <laughs> ha, look at me. You know, not, not, I know he doesn't, but he could. You can rest on your laurels. We had a great curry night a week ago. I could spend a few days thinking about that. No. Don't look at the... And also, I mean, Paul forgot his past. Paul used to think about his, how he used to perform the laws. He said it's all rubbish. And the other worst kind of thing is your bad past. You know, your sins, you might despair over your sins and think, God could never forgive me of that. God's forgotten it. 
God forgot it on the first day you said sorry. That's true. Um, you might not be able, you know, people have bitterness, unforgiveness, like I was saying earlier. Um, things that have happened to them, things that have been done to them, even a bereavement. If someone dies, you know, a bereavement, someone who dies can make you think and dwell in the past and live in the past. And um, I was reminded of a scripture in Zechariah, Old Testament, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And I don't know if you know the book of Zechariah, but in the book of Zechariah, the temple and the town of Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's all ruins and rubble. And Zechariah has a vision of a man measuring the rubble. He's got a tape measure and he's going around measuring the ruins. And he's looking at these ruins and he's saying, oh, we need to build that again. Oh, look at that. Oh, dear. You know, it's in Zechariah chapter 2. And then the angel says in the vision, he says, don't measure the ruins. Don't dwell on the ruins. Because God says to him, I'm going to build a new Jerusalem. And it's going to be, it's going to be so big, the walls won't even fit. The people. And I believe I have a word for you today. Maybe it's prophetic. The word is this. Don't look at the past. Don't compare to things that went before. God's going to do something new. And even Tim with his MLG network, just to pick on you, bro, you know, don't look at other things, what happened before in churches. God's going to do something new, and it won't necessarily have the same size and dimensions. Don't be limited by past glories or nostalgia or how things once were. God's got something new that won't fit within those walls. And he's saying, don't measure the ruins. Believe I've got something new for you. That picture there is of a man with a measuring line, measuring the ruins of Jerusalem. Okay, next slide. Oh, dear. Done it again. Now, I don't know if you can see this. This is a picture of one of the most dangerous pathways in the world. It's in China. And there's a person standing on this wooden board over a huge uh, drop into a canyon. And it's called, it's one of the most dangerous paths on some Chinese mountain. I looked it up. Now the point of why I'm showing you that is because once Paul has talked about the kind of person you should be, he then says, now, this is the other kind of person. Don't be like these people. This is who you're not to be like. And he says, these people are on a dangerous path. He doesn't use those words, but that's what he means. He says, they're on a dangerous path. And there are three characteristics of these people which even we need to be aware of and not become like them. It's in verse um, 18. It says this, 19, sorry. It says, I say again with tears in my eyes, there are those whose conduct show that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are heading for destruction. And that can mean hell. Their God is their appetite, or their bodily desires. They boast about things they should be ashamed of, and they, their mind is locked in to the life on this earth. They only think of things on this earth. Now, you might say, there is no way, Simon, I could ever be like that. Well, let me just say it's a gradual process. In the first instance, it says their God is their bodily appetites. The old Bible version says their God is their belly. What that means is they are basically pandering to self and self-indulgent 
and allowing their body to say, you know what, today people say, if you feel like it, do it. If you feel like it, if it feels good, do it. And if you let your body start to become number one, your bodily desires, you'll give in to lust, you'll give in to overeating, you'll give in to staying in bed till very late. Nothing wrong with the lying, by the way, but just... I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just trying to say, if you let your bodily desires be number one, that's what these people are, bodily desires became number one, then I'll stay in bed late, I won't go to bed till late, I'll watch movies till three o'clock at night, I'll eat whatever I want, I'll go and watch pornography, I'll give in to my bodily lusts, I'll gossip with my tongue, I'll gossip a lot, I love gossip, ooh, gossip, gossip, gossip. Have you heard the joke about, sorry, quickly. There are three men in a boat on a lake and um, the three men said, look, we're out here in the middle of this lake. Let's share our deepest, darkest secrets. So, okay then, no one's going to hear us. Okay. So the first one says, well, I've got a real problem with theft. At work, I steal things from my boss. Oh dear, oh dear, they said on the boat. Then this other person, they said, what about you, mate? What's your problem? He says, oh, my problem's lust. Every woman I look at, I can't, you know, I just keep lusting after I'm thinking about them. Oh dear. And they say to the third man in the boat, what's your problem? He said, my problem's gossip. I can't wait to get back to the, I can't, can't, can't wait to get back to land. <clears throat> now, the point I'm trying to make is, if you make bodily desires, your body, number one, if you, your body is a great servant, but a very bad master. You will then start going on this path. And the second result of being self-indulgent in your body is phase two, where it says they are bragging about things they should be ashamed of. And what they're doing is they're turning morality on its head and allowing things that in the past they would not have allowed once upon a time. This is what the world is doing today. The world is starting to allow things that it never used to allow. And it's going to get worse. I heard someone say, this will shock you, that paedophilia, you know, will be legalised in about 20, 30 years' time. I don't know if that's true, but you'd say, no, it can't be. Well, you don't know. Think, think what the, the, the being self-indulgent leads to step two on the downward path, which is this. You, your morals turn upside down. You get perverted standards. And this can happen to Christians, even. You start, if you sin enough, it becomes normal. It's okay. And then the last thing on the stage, on this uh, path, uh, is that their mind becomes locked into things on this earth. All they think about is this life. All they think about is your car, your house, your shed, <laughs> your dinner. Um, all you think about the next holiday. I'm sure none of you are like this, but... <laughs> It's a warning. Paul's saying, don't become so locked in, anchored, anchored down onto the earth like an anchor on the earth. You're called to live a higher life. And finally, I don't know if you can see that, the last bit, few verses in that chapter poses the question, why should we do all this? Why should we really go after God? The reason is because you're a citizen of heaven. <laughs> you know, 
We, the River Church, is a colony of heaven. You're not in heaven, but you're a colony of heaven. What that means is, that's where you actually belong. That's where your name has been registered. Your name has been registered in heaven. And in the town of Philippi, I read this somewhere, Philippi was a colony of Rome. That's why I got a picture of it there. It was a colony of Rome, and the people who lived in Philippi had their names registered with the emperor in Rome, with the senate. And so they lived as Romans, even though they were living far away. And God is calling us to live as though we are heavenly, be- heavenly citizens in this world. And here's one thing you may not know, I just want to quickly say. Philippi would get visited after many, many years by the emperor himself. He would turn up and they would play trumpets. The emperor's coming. Everyone would get all ready. The emperor's coming. They'd all get really pleased and chuffed that the emperor had bothered to visit them. And did you know that in the year 48 BC, the Roman emperor had a nickname? He was nicknamed the saviour of mankind. Can you believe it? They called the Roman emperor the saviour of mankind. And so when he turned up at Philippi, which did happen once, they were like, the saviour of mankind has come! (laughs) The saviour of the Roman Empire has come! And so they all rush out, and the good thing about when the emperor came is he would give you something. So what he would do, he'd give to the city of Philippi maybe relief from taxes for a year. Or he might bring to them special food, which they'd never had. It came straight from Rome. But whenever the emperor came, it's a bit like Father Christmas. (laughs) Sorry, I don't believe in Father Christmas. But they would come and give something. And when Jesus, who is the real saviour, the real saviour of mankind, when he returns to pick up his colony of Christians on the earth, when he comes, the real saviour, he's going to bring a gift for you. And do you know what that gift is? Gift is a new body. You're going to get a resurrection body. Ruth Churcher is going to be 33, year old, 33 years old forever. Are you pleased with that, Ruth? Yeah? Well, you're only 34 now. So. But you're going to get a new body forever, like Jesus' body. That's what it says in this passage. It says, We eagerly await for him to return as our Saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies or our lowly bodies and change them into glorious bodies using his own power. I I, I rejoice that we get a new body because this body as it currently is the devil can get to us through this body he can drag us down through our lusts he can drag us down through our tongue and God is saying I'm going to come River Church and one day you are going to be given when the true saviour comes you're going to be given a new resurrection body. Now, if you believe that, which is what it says, we need to live that way. We need to live as people of the new. So the whole passage finishes by him saying, therefore, very important when you see the word therefore, because it refers to what came before. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. Now, all I've done really this morning is go through the passage But I want to encourage you with two things, and then I'm going to finish. And I really am going to finish. I'm not going to go on and on. The first one is this. You can have a resurrection life right now, but you won't get the new body yet. 
That comes later. But you can have a new life. You can live a higher life now. You can start to really experience his mighty power and know him. You can have a new life. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is I want to give a little response, maybe just to get you to um, pray quietly in your hearts rather than come out the front. I want you to ask yourself this. Have you been looking at the past? Have you been distracted like I was in the primary school? Have you been looking at the past or looking at what happened to you and you stop really going after God? Or maybe you've um, been sinning too freely. <laughs> no license to sin. Or maybe you've been lethargically lying in the lift, just saying, I'm a Christian, don't need to do anything. Don't need to read my Bible. Nah, I'm saved. I just want to give you that response. Think about, is there anything... Has anything spoken to me this morning? If not, then go and have your coffee. <laughs> but please, let's have a time response. I'm just going to ask Tim to come up and just maybe lead us as he feels. Could you come up, brother? I would like us to respond to, are we looking at the past? Are we stuck in the past? Are we, have we been living a license to sin? Have we been living that lethargic, oh, I'm saved, so I'm fine. God has so much for us. Amen.